Welcome into the Sun Devil Source Report podcast. I'm your host, Rob Warner, joined by Sun Devil Source reporters, Maxwell Madden. Max, how are you doing this this fine Tuesday afternoon? Doing great, Rob. Thanks. Fabian Ardai, how are you, sir? Just fin- finished a vivid uh, analogy between the Pac-12 and La Liga, so it's really some riveting conversation. It was absolutely riveting. Kalen Jones, how are you this fine afternoon? Good, man. How you been? Doing all right, and our very own site publisher, Chris Cartman. Chris, how are you? I'm just wondering how Sam Bradford's getting $15 million from the Cardinals. All in a health insurance policy. I think we're all wondering about that. $15 million guaranteed. Anyways. But we're going to get into ASU now. This is going to be primarily an ASU men's basketball podcast, but we will tease a little bit um, of our football content at the end of this episode. We're going to have a, a premium edition of our ASU football podcast coming out. That'll be out sometime on Thursday. But, guys, let's get right into the matter at hand. And the Sun Devils are going dancing for the first time since the 2013-2014 season. The fourth time in the 2000s, ASU has advanced to the tournament. They received an at-large bid and will take on Syracuse in the first four. And let's get to the breakdown of this game. This game is going to be on True TV um, and KTR Radio, 6.20 a.m. at 6.10 p.m. from Dayton, Ohio. Syracuse, 20-13 overall, 8-10 in the ACC ASU finished 20 and 11, 8 and 10 in the Pac-12. Syracuse is was 14 and 5 at home and 4 and 4 and 7 away this season. ASU was 13 and 4 at home, 4 and 6 away. Let's get to the makeup though as well. Fabian, you did a lot of research about this team and what makes their zone so special. The the starters for Syracuse, Tyus Battle averaging almost 20 points a game, Frank Howard with about 15 points per game, O'Shea Brissett averaging 14.7 points per game and over 8 rebounds per game. Mark Dolza averaging five points and five rebounds per game, and Pascal Chukwu uh, at 7-2, averaging five points, seven rebounds, and over two blocks per game. So the length, obviously, a big factor, but what makes this team so special, especially with their zone? I think it's kind of ironic how ASU pretty much has a scratch and claw after facing so many zone teams, in the teams that zoned them in the Pac-12, only to face the most iconic zone in college basketball probably right now in Jim Beheim's 2-3 zone in Syracuse. Uh, Arizona State at least has the advantage if they've faced the same zone already this season. Mike Hopkins, who is the only active head coach, because uh, Rick Pitino is currently without a job, but that is a former disciple of Bayheim's. They run the same 2-3 zone at UW. And UW really handled Arizona State fairly well. Uh, I think held Arizona State to 26% from behind the arc. UW won that game 68-64. They limited the amount of possessions. ASU only had like two fast break points. They really just couldn't get their offense going in any means and that's what Syracuse is going to try to do and they do it honestly probably a little bit better just because they have better athletes they don't have a guy like Matisse Thibel at UW who is a great defensive player but they just have the overall length to make it incredibly challenging for Arizona State I think they were the second best uh, in defensive field goal percentage in the ACC last year uh, this year but the only reason they weren't first is because Virginia the team ahead of them has a historically all-time great defense uh, but they have size. You mentioned a guy like Chukwu, who at the very end is a great rim protector. What Arizona State's going to have to really struggle with, I really have to try to make, make sure it does well, is it executes simply and deliberately in the minimum amount of possessions that it has. And in the few opportunities it does have, by getting stops or by getting steals and turnovers and maybe stretching out the team with the full-court press successfully, is try to make sure that they attack before the zone is set. Because once that 2-3 zone is set, you'll see they'll trap to the corners, they'll trap to the top of the key, try throwing in the post, it's going to be incredibly difficult to get an entry pass in. 
You have to find the sweet spot, which is around that free throw line, and you have to rely a lot on guys like Cody Justice, Mickey Mitchell, Kamani Lawrence in this game. Get the ball in there, get the ball quickly, and once you get that ball to that sweet spot, the free throw line, distribute inside quickly. Whoever has the ball, whether it's Justice, Mitchell, or Lawrence, they have to get the ball out of their hands quickly. Either it's down to the low post to a guy like Romello White or Daquan Lake, or kick it outside, and you have to make sure you hit your shots. Arizona State just has to shoot well in this game. If it can, if it isn't efficient, it, it's just a nightmare for Arizona State offensively. And these two teams are about as different as you're going to see in the fact that Arizona State comes into this game with a 17th offensive efficiency ranking in the country, whereas Syracuse has a 129th ranking in that category. But Syracuse has a 11th ranking in defensive efficiency in the nation, while ASU is at 124. The zone is really going to be a problem, as, as Fabian mentioned. Chris, what do you think some of the keys will be for ASU, though, to try to combat that? Well, these are just totally two contrasting styles. Uh, it's going to be a battle of who asserts itself in terms of the way in which this game is going to end up being played. Um, ASU is going to probably want to push tempo. How do you do that? By, by pressing. The other, the other element that you have here is Syracuse only has seven scholarship players. So if you get into more of a track meet, you try to wear them down physically by pressing to uh, dictate tempo, that's more to ASU's liking. If Syracuse gets set in a half-court situation, it's very effective. Uh, 39.6% field goal percentage defense, uh, 32.2% three-point percentage defense. As you said earlier, Rob, they're 11th nationally in defensive efficiency ranking. Uh, ASU is like totally the opposite. ASU is is you know, has historically this year been very good at offensive efficiency, 17th, defensively, 124th, you know. So it's not really any sort of surprise as to how they should be trying to attack the zone. Uh, you know, e- even even our Syracuse site, uh, whose publisher is Mike McAllister, has said it, teams that have had the ability to get to that free throw line area with somebody who can pass, dribble, shoot, and create – they've given Syracuse some problems. Now, ASU doesn't have the personnel that's well-suited to being able to do that, which is one of their big uh, areas of weakness this season, and that's what caused them a lot of the problems. They've tried to do it with Cody Justice, mixed results. They've tried to do it with Mickey Mitchell, hasn't very been very successful. They've tried a little bit with Kamani Lawrence. Yeah, late. He kind of came on a little bit late in the season, but I don't think he's going to be ready for this type of a game. Um so it's, a, it's, it's, it's going to be measured in terms of whether ASU does have that diligence to be deliberate and, and focused or, or not. Yeah, I think that, that North Carolina actually is a good example of a team that has done this really well against Syracuse in the past. Uh, they often get at least two forwards like Theo Pinson or someone else into the key and then are able to shift them up and down from the free throw line and make that last pass to get underneath the bucket. And that's not something, as Chris noted, that ASU has. They don't have the two dominant-sized athletic forwards. Uh, it's, I mean, you'd have to put Romello White and Daquan Lake in there, and they're not as, they don't, just don't have the talent level that North Carolina has. So that's something they're going to struggle with. I think you're also going to see an increased emphasis on the Sun Devils trying to get a lot of steals like they did against Washington because one of the only ways to score effectively against Syracuse is in transition before they get set up, as you noted. And, KJ, what do you think some of the main keys are going to be for ASU in this, in this showdown? Well, I mean, looking back at the previous matchup, when you consider how, and I think Fabian touched on it, um, ASU really needs to make sure that they have someone who can beat Syracuse zone by getting to the free throw line, getting into those little creases and openings. And as you guys mentioned, they've tried different players throughout the season to do it. 
Um, Cody Justice, I know that, as Chris mentioned, he's had mixed results, but against Washington, which is probably the most similar profile, he had, he went 7-13 to 13 from the field, um, played 34 minutes, went 5-9 and nine from two-point range, and then 2-4 of four from three. Uh, it's a pretty efficient night, even though he only had two assists. But again, you're looking at Kamani Lawrence, like you guys mentioned, he went 0-1, for 1, only played four minutes, and wasn't really valuable within that time. So it's really going to come down to, I think, those two players in particular, the who can break or penetrate Syracuse's zone, when you look at Kamani Lawrence and Cody Justice throughout the season, how they've been used, those are the guys that ASU is going to rely on a lot. I'm really glad that you brought up how Cody Justice did it in that Washington game because that's like a carbon copy of what we're going to see ASU be trying to do in this game. Um, and how effective he is at that is, by and large, how ASU is probably going to do in, in its half-court offense, right? The other thing is... Um, Syracuse is going to force difficult contested three-point shots. That's their that's their nature. And are we going to see a game in which two or three of ASU senior guards, Trey Holder, Shannon Evans, Cody Justice, are on shooting the basketball? You know, if if none of them are or one of them is, that's that's you know a recipe for failure probably in a game like this. So they're going to not just need justice and some success at breaking down the zone from the inside out, but also at being able to, to make some shots. And the winner of this game is going to take on a six-seeded TCU in Detroit on Friday. Do you think the winner of this game has a, tr- has a pretty good chance to make it at least one more round? ASU hasn't advanced to the Sweet 16 since 1994-1995. They would have to win one more game even after TCU to, to get to that point. But what do you guys think about the kind of side of the, of the bracket they're on? Well, ASU wouldn't be a big underdog to TCU, and maybe a few points, but... Um, what we've seen from ASU this season is it actually do better on the back end of games. It, it's done better with shorter turnarounds to games, less time to prepare and all that. So, um, you know, it, it, this involves going from Dayton to Detroit. It's a, it's not a big, you know, trip or whatever. It's a few hours by, I don't know if they're going to fly or bus, bus a few hours, but you know, you're, you're you're adding that in, and you have a, a one day of prep, and then you have a game, and that make, that makes it hard. The other team is going to be fresher, right? I don't know I don't know how much prep they're doing for both teams or how what they're going to be doing, you know, structurally. ASU's at a disadvantage, but then again, ASU has played better almost when it's had these looser, quicker turnaround type of a game versus when opponents have spent more time preparing for it, and vice versa. Yeah, I mean, I, I think TCU is a very good team. They Ken Palm really likes the Horn Frogs due to the nature of uh, well, they score a lot, but they also play in probably the deepest conference in in the country at this point. In the Big Twelve, uh, they rank eighth in adjusted offensive efficiency, so they've been able to do that. And they've also been able to be versatile on the offensive end. I believe six players, six or seven or so, score in double digits in every game, and that's not something that ASU is obviously super good at defensively or defending a lot of different weapons. So. But I, I do agree, Chris, that they would not be huge underdogs in this game, and it definitely is possible due to the way that they play after. Yeah, just to you know, bounce off your guys' points again, like just looking at their schedule, is, as Max mentioned, they play in the Big 12, which is arguably the deepest conference in basketball or college basketball at this point. Um, but there, there is a chance I think ASU ha- can play to the level of its opponent. And, I mean, we've seen that throughout the season, whether or not you know it's a – you know, significantly more talented opponent or a lesser opponent. ASU just kind of, you know, sit between that middle ground and bring an opponent down to that level or play up to it. So 
Uh, I think it would be an entertaining game regardless. And based on the experience so far for ASU, um, you know, you would hope that the tide kind of turns instead of going from 500 or so in close games to, you know, being able to pull out a close win. And let's just remember, uh, this last game that ASU lost in the Pac-12 tournament to Colorado, that was the first game ASU's lost the game by double digits all season. Mm-hmm. ASU's tended to be in every game that it's lost. It just happens to be on the wrong end of too many close games. The odds are Syracuse doesn't have enough potency on the offensive end to get away from ASU. So we we're looking at a game that's game. probably going to be close game. Now it may be on the lower ending, lower scoring side because that's what Syracuse wants. But unless it has an uncharacteristically good night offensively, we're probably talking about a close game. And then if ASU wins, probably talking about another close game against TCU. It's just that they haven't fostered a lot of confidence in their ability to be successful in those types of games. So let's get to some predictions about the first game against Syracuse. What do you guys think is going to happen? I mean, Vegas isn't usually wrong. They favor ASU by one and a half, um, but it is March, so... I think ASU can pull it out. Um, I probably have them winning by two or three points. Um, but I think it's going to take a massive, you know, trademark spurt like we've seen throughout the entire season where ASU kind of flips the game on its head and then runs away from their opponent from there. Honestly, I'm, I'm not sure that there was another bubble team or maybe another at-large bid that was a worse matchup for ASU than Syracuse because of the zone. It's pretty much the worst-case scenario, I know, you know, ASU's very happy that they're in the tournament, but this is going to be extremely tough. I, I don't see the shot selection being where they want it to be, and you have to have unprecedented accuracy uh, to overcome that. So I'm, I think I'm going to take Syracuse. I'm going with Syracuse as well. I, I think that for some of the reasons you just mentioned, Max, I think the zone, I, don't, I haven't seen anything that makes me believe that ASU can consistently get around the zone or, or beat the zone, and they've taken on uh, Mike Hopkins' Washington team, and they didn't, they didn't win that game, and... I'd say that's probably a little bit worse of a zone than Jim Beheims, who's, you know, the person that created it for Syracuse. So I, I think that ASU is going to struggle. I think it'll be a close game, but I think Syracuse is ultimately going to pull it out. I'm also going to go with Syracuse. I agree with what Max said. This is a bad matchup for ASU. Um, almost any team that it could have also played in in a first four would have been a better situation. The, the ASU – has struggled not just with the zone, but also teams that are longer and more athletic in their front courts. You look at Syracuse, it's a, it's, a, it's a very good rebounding team. It's long. They can test a lot of shots. They change a lot of shots. They don't let teams get into a really good rhythm and a pace offensively. All the things that ASU kind of struggles with. So it's hard, given that reality, to pick ASU in this game. And, and if ASU does win, it'll probably be because the three senior guards are all firing on all cylinders together. And I, I, I'm really curious just to see, just because two completely different styles on, on two teams, I'm just curious to see if, if there's a chance that one of the teams can, can pull away from the other or if this is another close game. But let's talk a little bit about how the bracket came together. The last four in were ASU, Syracuse, UCLA, and St. Bonaventure. Um, some of the potential snubs that people had big problems with, uh, USC, they went 23-11, and 12-6 in the Pac-12, second place in the Pac-12, and they went to the Pac-12 championship game last week. St. Mary's went 28-5. They were 16-2 in the WCC. They finished second place in the WCC. They failed to make the WCC championship game as they lost to BYU in the semifinals. 
Oklahoma State, Notre Dame, and Louisville, some of the other some of the other teams that people had problems with that didn't make it. Guys, what do you guys think about how ASU and Syracuse kind of made it in against some of these other teams like USC and St. Mary's? Well, I, I thought it was interesting that USC got snubbed and Oklahoma State. When you look at Oklahoma State's um, resume in particular, I think they beat Kansas twice this season. Um, their losses are, in my opinion, significantly better because the Pac-12 and or in comparison to the Big 12 are you know at two different ends of the Power 5 spectrum at this point um, in the tournament or in NCAA Division 1. So I, I found it interesting that Oklahoma State got snubbed, um, especially when you consider I think what the committee ended up basing its you know foundations for giving ASU an entry into the tournament was that it beat two number one seeds earlier in the season, one on the road, one at a neutral site. Um, also, again, with USC as well, like I, I thought that they had played well enough, especially reaching the Pac-12 title game. I, I thought that they would have garnered enough, you know, support to get in. But it, it's interesting, you know. Um, obviously, there, there's different factors that go into it. Chris has broken it down. We'll probably break it down again right now. But um, I, I thought it was interesting that the committee used different um, variables in terms of allowing ASU to get in over those two teams in particular. Yeah, um, I think it's fascinating, as you said there, that Oklahoma State is left out, USC is left out, ASU is included, Syracuse is included, Oklahoma is included. Like, Oklahoma State beat Oklahoma, Mm -hmm. beat Oklahoma in the tournament, in the Mm -hmm. conference Mm -hmm. tournament, right? Yeah, last week. And Oklahoma State has has these really big quality wins and plays in – the number one RPI league doesn't make it. Um, Syracuse didn't have many quality wins. They finished 10th in the ACC. 10th in the ACC. If you look at their quality wins, it was against lesser tier teams. Now, they had a monster schedule, and they lost to North Carolina twice. They lost to Virginia twice. They lost to Duke. And they lost to another top 25 RPI team, maybe St. Bonaventure, I think. So... Um, it's just kind of one of these things where I think the committee can figure out an argument to be made about any of these bubble teams. It's a, it's, uh, we talked a lot, we wrote a lot about how the way people perceive the criteria is very different than what the actual criteria are. Like people said, well, do how can USC not make it when USC finished second by itself in the Pac-12 and ASU finished tied for eighth. But but those people weren't realizing is on the team sheets what is actual, actually discussed in the committee, conference record, conference standing, how you finish in your last 10, things that maybe used to be factors, they're actually not anymore. Those things are kind of out of the equation. They rewarded teams that played tougher non-conference schedules I think and had success in those Oklahoma state maybe didn't have as tough of a non-conference. And for whatever reason, they made decision about that. The other thing that I think you can't really get away from because it's either a really massive coincidence or else there's something to it is the teams that were, that got mentioned in the FBI probe and or, and or head coaches that were arrested all seem to be negatively impacted by this. Not all, but you know, Arizona getting a four seed. Everyone thought Arizona should have been a two or a three. USC not being included. Two, you know, both of them coaches arrested. Uh, Oklahoma State right. was one of the, you know, 
reportedly one of the teams that was that was mentioned uh, included, right? Um, so I think and then Louisville. Louisville was a yeah. bubble team that was excluded, right? Everybody, a lot of people thought Louisville should have made it. To me, that's more than that's pretty circumstantial that you have something that's related to what kept those teams out. Uh, and what you have to say is for ASU, uh, kudos to Bobby Hurley and uh, Dave Cohen, the administrator for ASU basketball, uh, for scheduling the way that they did. If ASU doesn't schedule, a lot of people felt like they probably wouldn't make it. Yeah, they they wouldn't have made it. They twelve and zero, literally was like probably the minimum that they had to do given their conference finish to make the tournament. One more loss, I don't think ASU is in the tournament. Probably, I mean they're not the last team in. They're the they're second, the second to last team in. Okay, in the you, that's like probably one game here or there, right? Um, so uh, unprecedented stuff. No team has ever from the Pac-12 had eight wins and made the tournament, including the Pac-12 tournament. Never happened before. No team ever. Um, finished eighth or worse in the Pac-12 and made it. But it's a new era. And then also, ASU got lucky. ASU got lucky because this was the year that a lot of this new using of uh, the predictive metrics and looking at the, 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 the quadrants, one, two, three, and four, all that stuff is new this year. If you looked at ASU's resume previous years, they, they don't make it. This year, they make it. And they got lucky, but they also took care of business. In the non-conference. And a lot of people down the stretch thought that it was almost over after ASU lost five of their past six. And as you mentioned, they they dropped their first game of the year by double digits in their last in their last potential game against Colorado in the first round of the Pac-12 tournament. Here, here's what I would say about this, and I actually tweeted something. Fans have an emotional connection to the team that they're following, right? So, and, and how that team's performing more recently affects how you feel about them more, right? So that's a recency bias, right? People decided emotionally ASU is not a tournament team, right? Because historically, nobody gets into the tournament when you're 8 and 11 in Pac-12 games and you're 8th in the league and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. People were not making decisions based upon analytically evaluating the criteria and looking at who the competitive teams at ASU was up against on the bubble and then making a determination, right? The NCAA selection committee does not have the same emotional tie that a fan does or somebody who's following ASU basketball locally does. So you have to separate your own emotions from the process. Uh, yeah, I, d- I definitely agree with that. Um, looking back at sort of what we talked about non-conference with USC, took a look at all the all the teams that they played non-con- non-conference that they scheduled. Uh, you know, the most impressive maybe of which being Oklahoma, SNU, SMU, and Texas A&M. Uh, they lost all three of those. Uh, they did, however, they did beat New Mexico State, who is currently a 12 seed, I believe, uh, in the tournament. So, I mean... There was no better example of the criteria changing than USC not getting in. I mean, in RPI rank 34, they went 12 and 6 in the Pac-12, and they didn't make it. I mean, they, it's it's just totally different now. Whereas ASU does with those quadrant one wins, which is more important, of which USC doesn't really have any. And a question that that I came to after this that that, that I was curious about is: Do you guys think that ASU season? regardless of how they do now in this NCAA tournament, is a success. Absolutely. Um, I didn't come into this year thinking that ASU had any shot, really, at reaching the NCAA tournament. 
Um, and in my opinion, I think when when they were experiencing that 12 and 0 run, that number three and achieving number three, I, that that stuff in itself, the fact that you're setting program records, that you're notching, you know, high ranks for you know school history. I mean, that in and of itself, to me, especially for this program, which for so long has been you know the little brother to Arizona. I think, and especially the first rivalry game of the season, I think you saw the fact, I think it was more about the foundational aspect if you're going to go symbolism and, you know, metaphorical wins from this year. I think ASU can hang its hat on the fact that, you know, it's shown that it's capable of competing with the big dogs within not only the Pac-12, but go on the road and defeat Kansas, go on uh, into a neutral site and beat both Kansas State and a number one seeded Xavier. So, I think in just from that um, perspective, I think that ASU had a very successful season, even if they bow out of the tournament in the first round. The fact that they're even in this position, you know, really, and we've been talking about for the past couple of weeks, and if anything, their record shows, they probably shouldn't be as, as good as they were at one point. So they definitely overachieved. Yeah, the success, success is something that uh, – how you view it evolves with a team. So if you, before the season, said ASU was, is going to make the first four and be in the NCAA tournament, even if it loses in the first round, that would be considered a success because everyone thought this was a bubble team that maybe could possibly get to 20 wins, and they got there. But when measured against what ASU could have potentially done, after its 12 and 0 start when you are basically recalibrating what's possible for the team there they it was a disappointing conference season so you have to you have to you have to look at both of those things overall they moved they 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 took a step forward in the right direction they made progress as a program their recruiting is still going really well right all those things are in, in the in the right direction if you were to plot them and then on the other hand they had a disappointing overall Pac-12 season and they showed areas in which they still are limited or, or, or struggle and um, and need to have subsequent improvement on to be a better team next year and the year beyond that uh, no yeah I totally agree I think that a lot of fans if they lose this game against Syracuse um might not see it that way. We might see that emotional bias creep back into it, but I think the, the the way that the committee evaluates teams is also a good way to evaluate your favorite teams and sort of where they're at and, and be realistic about it. And, and where ASU is at is they have the pieces and the components coming in. They just need to, you know, fit them all together and then should eventually be able to be more consistent. And I, I agree with the, what you said, Chris. If, if you don't – if you look at this season broadly – as how they were projected to do this season, I think you can say that this season is a win. I mean, you look at they're now third; they were third in attendance this year in the Pac-12. The atmosphere is in Wells Fargo Arena. I think that's a big thing to note. Is it? Broke yeah, they broke they broke records. They literally broke down the the top of the band the the wall uh, at the top of Wells Fargo Arena to fit more to fit more seats. I think stuff like that, as well as uh, the recruiting class you mentioned. You have four four-star recruits coming in next season, the number 19 national rank right now in the country, as reported by 247 Sports. I think some of those things just show that even though this team has struggled down the stretch and hasn't done what I think almost everybody thought when they went 12-0 and 
got ranked third in the country. I think this season is still a win because of those factors that are going to impact the, the program for years and years to come. As we move over, though, to ASU football now, there's just a few notes that we want to talk about. We attended the first ASU uh, spring practice of the season. Um, former NFL center Kevin Mawai, primarily of the New York Jets, uh, will join the team's coaching staff as an offensive analyst. He played for Herm Edwards' Jets team from 2001 to 2005. He was selected to the Pro Bowl eight times and a first-team All-Pro seven times, and he previously served as an assistant offensive line coach for the Chicago Bears in 2016. Another quick note, former defensive coordinator Phil Bennett's son, Sam Bennett, was promoted from an offensive graduate assistant that he served in the past two years to an offensive analyst. But guys, after your first practice of, of the spring, what are your first impressions, main takeaways so far? Um, uh, it's definitely a different vibe. Um, we asked Manny Wilkins about, you know, what it was kind of like playing or not playing, but practicing, you know, the practice setting itself. He said that was, mu- he described it as being more, um, pro-like or more professional, I believe was the jargon that he used. But in a sense, again, like that, we, when the new leadership model was unveiled, when, uh, Herm Edwards was hired again, like the, one of the, the principles was that, um, you know, ASU wanted to, you know, kind of install more of a pro professional system within its football program. And I mean, so far, just the way that they've gone about practice in terms of executing drills, um, the different elements to it, the fact I, I thought it was interesting that they have an entire segment of practice in the middle of it in between all the different drills. They have a theory portion where they sit and they discuss what they've seen and what's gone out throughout the practice so far, then reconvene for different drills. So it's definitely a different type of setting and a different type of atmosphere. Um, it's much more loose, I think, and I, I think there's a lot of buy-in not only from the players, but from fans too, I, obviously it's it's the first day, it's very new, but that newness brings excitement and we'll see whether or not that continues down the road. Yeah, and, and we'll see if that continues, as you mentioned, Kalen, it is, it is the first day, but in, in terms of the fan engagement sort of thing. But that is something that John Humphrey also said uh, about it being loose at practice. He said that that's something that they wanted last year is to be able to come out and dance and do whatever they want, which which was, you know, sometimes uh, evident in practice but now it's it's a lot more open it's a lot more fun we'll see how that changes obviously because there is much work to be done with this team though my favorite thing was Herm Edwards after practice um he he let media not just watch the whole practice but shoot the whole practice video photos and he almost had like a rhetorical conversation with himself where he was like what, what's going to happen? They're going to show somebody else, another team, the the video of practice? I don't care. They're going to see us run the ball. They're going to see us pass the ball. They know all our plays. They can just watch our team from last year. They're not going to be going off of what we do and report it into practice. And a lot of people don't even know what they're watching anyways, which is true, by the way. That's like the kind of thing I've longed to hear from a coach, which is just like not, not being so secretive and um, like so, you know, you know, not thinking so much of their their process and their thing that they're gonna like you know surprise everyone because by the time you get done with your first non-conference game or your second non-conference game, everybody sees it all on the film anyways. They're not going by what ha- ever happened in the practice, so it's it's really actually kind of silly. It was refreshing to see her Edwards say that the the practice it, what the it, it had um, a more relaxed atmosphere, but you could tell that everyone was still, you know, knowing that they had to try to get something accomplished and that they were still focused and disciplined. Yeah, all that there, stuff yeah. was still there. 
you know, I think Herm Edwards is gonna is going to, you know, be more scheduled in terms of just, you know, when practice starts and ends and not and not talking as much to to people. Um, what I always look for, who's changed their bodies. Um, you know what 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 players have moved to positions or different roles and what that looks like. But you know we're gonna we're gonna kind of reserve all that and talk about that a lot more in the premium podcast to follow. We'll get one more practice observation in, and then on Thursday we'll talk about basically where things look in the first week of spring ball, and also we'll talk about pro day. Uh, we're taping this a day ahead of pro day, and that's going to be the next notch uh, in, in you know the development of these guys. They had five at the combine which is kind of a high number for ASU historically. Um, we just actually ran into Sam Jones before we taped the podcast. Uh, he, as we're recording today, he's uh, got two meetings with NFL teams. I think he's helped himself a fair amount. So looking forward to uh, really kind of, not just in the premium podcast, but also in our next free podcast, we'll be covering quite a bit of this football stuff as well. And I know that you don't win any games by the atmosphere or the feeling, but I, I agree with what you said about how it's refreshing to see fans are allowed to come out to practice, media is allowed to see whatever they want, and Herm Edwards says you can tape whatever you want because that's not what's going to be winning or losing football games. Well, well, it, let's remind our, ourselves: it, it's he's undefeated. <laughs> yeah, it's it's March, right? What happens sometimes is. If you start to not do as well or you get into the season, then that's when you see a lot more restriction of access and whatnot. But uh, but they set a great tone. And I think players appreciated you know, playing for Herm Edwards because he is kind of a player's coach and, and a looser, more engaging uh, guy who's, you know, inviting players to his office and is in the locker room more. I think that I think that's something that's gonna benefit this team and you never know how much I think this is a good point to just end on you never know how much that the way a team feels could impact performance if you if you, in in, in um, 2007 when uh, after Dirk Cutter had been fired and ASU hired Dennis Erickson it was actually not a very talented team but they won their first seven games and they were ranked in the top ten in the country and part of that was they had a very easy schedule, but another equally important part of that was Dennis Erickson was a player's coach, and he was very loose and easygoing and whatever. And and at least in that first year, two years, players really actually enjoyed that 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 whole thing, and I think it, it, it brought a little bit more out of them. Uh, and so I think that's something that we'll have to look forward and uh, whether or not that happens this year with this team. So tomorrow... Wednesday is going to be the pro day. Thursday, another another practice, and we will be recording another premium edition of the Sun Devil Source Report podcast. After that, discussing more in-depth stuff about ASU football. We'll give you all that soon. But thank you very much for tuning into this episode alongside Kalen Jones, Max Madden, and site publisher Chris Cartman. I'm Rob Warner saying so long, and thank you for tuning in. <laughs>